What do you think of when you hear the word king? Now, if you're a, a parent with young children, this might come to mind. The movie Lion King. How many of you have ever seen the movie Lion King more than once? <laughs> or if you're into music, you might think of this person. Who is this? Who knows? B.B. King. And here's a, a trivia question. Who knows the name of his guitar? Lucille. Oh, wow. Okay, great. And this is another king, the king, King Elvis. Some of you who like boxing might recognize this flamboyant individual. Who is this? This is Don King. And of course, if you did not have breakfast this morning, you may be thinking about this king. Because they do have breakfast, I understand. Today, we're going to be talking about another king, a figure from history who was known as the king of kings. In fact, in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. Judah is a tribe of Israel in the Old Testament. And some of you are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis. And in that story that he had designed for children that adults love, Jesus is called Aslan, the mighty king, the king of glory. Now, during the holiday season, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And during the holidays, it seems like the pace of life increases because there are more and more things to put on our calendars. And here's the reality. We often realize that our time, our lives are shaped by the events on the calendar. Isn't that true? Could be a birthday or an anniversary or Labor Day or Thanksgiving Day. Now, Pastor Phil was pointing out that there is another calendar called the liturgical or church calendar. And today is a very special day. This is the last Sunday of the year on the church calendar. And it's called Christ the King Sunday. And it comes just before Advent, which we'll begin celebrating next Sunday. Now, today's message is about Christ the King. And as we focus on that topic, I wanted to find a way to make this connect with real life. So here's what I want you to think about. There is the life that you have right now. Your day-to-day -day life. And then there is another kind of life. And we might call this the life we want. Now, here's the reality. There is a gap between the life we have and the life we want. For some of us, it might be a smaller gap or a larger gap, but there is a difference between the life that you have and the life that you really want to have, this, this life that God designed you to live. And for some people, when you get on this side, when you start thinking about the life you really have, for some people, they go, yeah, it's kind of repetitious and sometimes this monotonous. I wake up in that same old bed eat that same old breakfast, go to that same old job, work for that same old boss, do the same old work, come home to the same old house and the same old spouse, watch the same old TV show, get in that same old bed and get up the next day and do it all over again. That's my life. And then you have this life over here. This is the life you want. Now you know this. This is a life that, that has excitement. This is a life that you could really be enthusiastic about. Now it's not a perfect life because, hey, there's always going to be disappointments and heartbreaks and challenges, but this life, this one over here, the life that you want, is a life of adventure. This is a life that, that you approach with, with passion and with purpose. Now, here's what I want you to see. I believe this with all my heart because it has been my personal experience, and I've seen this played out in the lives of so many people. The way you close the gap between the life that you have 
And the life that you want, the life that God designed you to live, is simply this. Are you ready? Embrace Jesus Christ as your king. And that is the teaching of the book. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Jesus himself said. Because when he called people into his kingdom, he was basically saying this. Look, an entirely different kind of life is possible if you'll do this. If you'll allow me to rule in your heart by embracing me as your king. So there are two big questions that I want us to look at this morning. And the first is this. It's on your outline. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? So let's begin to answer this question by looking at a story in the Bible that's associated with Christmas. It's from Matthew chapter 2. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles this morning, it's going to be on page 783. But here's how the story begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, it's another word for wise men, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was so happy. What does it say? He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the Christmas story begins with two kings, and these kings are not only in conflict. They're on a collision course. Because on the one hand, you have King Herod, and he's addicted to power, and he's never going to share any of that power with anybody else. And on the other hand, you have this child king, Jesus Christ. And he's going to use his power in a very different way. Jesus will use his power to serve people. In fact, he's going to use his power to save people. And Jesus said this when he grew up and began his public ministry. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to do what? to serve, to serve others, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when King Herod hears about the birth of this rival king, he's very disturbed, and here's why. Because of the title, King of the Jews. That's Herod's title, the title given to him by the Roman Empire, and Herod will do anything possible to hold on to both his title and his power. Now, the people of Jerusalem know this, and that's why they're so disturbed. See, Herod was quite, quite a despot. He had this impressive track record when it came to eliminating his rivals. In fact, historians tell us that he ordered the execution of his own wife, Miriam, and three of his sons. In fact, one of those execution orders came when he was on his deathbed. And so Herod was this cruel tyrant. He did not care about the people that he was supposed to be serving. In fact, that's why he taxed the Hebrew nation into homelessness. Now, on the other hand, you have King Jesus. And he's born during a time when there is great trouble in Israel. And the people of Israel, God's people, are looking for and longing for a good king, a righteous king. And that's the first thing that I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus is a righteous king, a completely righteous king. Our nation has just been through a very contentious and divisive election. And as you talk to people, there are so many perspectives on where America is headed. I've talked to people who are excited and confident that we're going in the right direction. Other people who are concerned, people who are worried, people who are afraid. People are all over the roadmap. In fact, this week I was talking to some friends and we were talking about Thanksgiving and about getting together with our families. And, and this is something that I heard many times. Man, I'm not sure what's going to happen on Thanksgiving Day when we all get around the table and somebody brings up the topic of politics, because we are not on the same page. Can I tell you something that I think we all could be on the same page about? 
is simply this. I believe that everybody wants a leader they can trust. A leader who will tell us the truth. A leader who's a person of character and integrity because it's that kind of leader that people support. It's that kind of leader that people follow. And here's what I want you to see. Jesus is a king who deserves to be followed because he is a perfectly righteous king. Now, when Herod hears about this child who is a potential rival to his throne, he calls together these religious experts because he wants to know where this king has been born. And we read this prophecy. It's actually in the book of Micah, but it's recounted here in Matthew's gospel. It says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that's why Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah, you, Bethlehem, in the tribe of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, a king, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So this shepherd who is coming is going to be a good king, a king who really cares about God's people. And here's another verse. This is in the book of Psalms, Psalm 89. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, describing the throne of Jesus Christ, the king. Now, remember the idea that we talked about, there's the life that you have and the life that you want. And there's this gap, and Jesus knows that there's a gap, and he wants to close it. And here's how he wants to close it. He wants to change your life. Do you realize that the, the purpose of the teaching of Jesus Christ was focused on this, the transformation of the human heart, changing your heart, changing my heart? Now, what kind of king is Jesus? You can look at your notes. He's a righteous king. What kind of followers do you think this righteous king wants? Righteous followers, exactly. So that raises the question, what does that mean? If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard those words righteous or righteousness, but what does it mean to be a righteous person? Simply this, to have a right relationship with God, where God's at the center of your life, where you put him above all else, and you experience his power, and you experience his peace, and you experience his purpose, because that's the life that you were intended to live. And I think deep down, that's the life that we want. So here's the question, how do you become a righteous person? How do you become somebody who has a right relationship with God? Now, I want to do this. I mean, I could tell you this morning the answer to that question. And if you've been here at BBCC, you've heard me talk about it all the time. We talk about gospel glasses. We talk about the bad news and the good news. But I want you to imagine this. God has given you an opportunity to tell somebody what it means to be righteous. God's put you next to somebody at work or in your neighborhood or in your family, and they've asked you point blank, how do I become a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What would you tell them? Would you be able to really explain that? So here's what I want to do. I want to coach all of you this morning. We're going to walk through this together, and you get to participate. All right, this is a group effort. So here's the deal. When you think about what we call the bad news, there are these two huge problems that we have as humans that we can't solve, and the first is described by a word with three letters with a big I in the middle. Great. Good start. Okay, now what is sin? Well, we know that sin is when we live our way instead of God's way because God says, love me with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many people do you know that do that perfectly? None. Nobody does. So we're all what? We're all sinners. Now, there's a consequence to our sin, and if you're taking notes this morning... Because there is a possibility that God might give you an opportunity to explain this. I want you to write down a verse. It's Romans 6.23. Because the whole gospel is contained right there in that verse. And it starts this way. For the wages of sin is what? 
Yeah, see, we have this really big problem that we can't solve that's connected to our sin. What we deserve for disobeying God is not only to be separated from him, but to die. And that's not just a physical death. That's a spiritual and, in fact, an eternal death. And that's really bad news. But you know this, the news gets even worse because we can't save ourselves. Now, when we turn the corner and we start talking about the good news, we really are focusing on the heart of the Christmas story. Because who was born in Bethlehem? King Jesus. Now, why did he come to our world? To save who? Sinners. In fact, if you read the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel, back in chapter 1, there's this angel that appears to Joseph, and he says, Hey, Joseph, don't be worried to take Mary home as your wife. Remember, she gets pregnant, and they're engaged, and it's just a scandal. It's a mess. And he says this, This child has a special name. Name him Jesus. Here's why. For he will save his people from their what? From their sins. So that is the rescue mission that Jesus is on. And that's a great way to explain this to other people. God, because of his great love, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. Because there is one God, but he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God the Father sends God the Son to earth. Now, in order for Jesus to rescue us, to save us, what kind of life does he have to live? Yeah, perfect life. Because think about this. We've got two big problems. What are they? What's the first one? Sin. And what's the other one? Death. Okay, what's God's solution to sin? It is to make a way for us to be, starts with the letter F, forgiven. So that's what Jesus is doing. So he has to live a perfect life so that he can die in our place as our substitute. And that's what happens at the cross. Jesus is arrested. He's beaten. He is nailed to a cross. And on the cross, this is what happens. God's willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. And then what happens to Jesus on the cross? Eventually. He dies. He dies. Now think about the bad news. You've got sin, and there's a solution to sin. What's the solution for sin? We just talked about it. Forgiveness. What is the opposite of death? Life. So what happens to Jesus after three days? God raises him to life. That's God's solution. He raises his son to life, and Jesus says, look, come and follow me, and I will give you a new what? A new life. The kind of life that God designed you to live so that you can close the gap between the life you have and the life you want. So how do you close that gap? Well, you have to make a decision. You have to make a choice. And you have to understand how bad the bad news is in order to appreciate how good the good news is. And, and you come to God and you say, God, okay, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus died and rose again and I want to follow him. I want to embrace Jesus Christ as my king. Now, what kind of king is Jesus? He's a righteous king. And here's what I want you to see. As a follower of Christ the king, you are declared righteous. This is huge. Your past is settled. When God looks at you, it's as if you've never sinned. Now take a look at this verse from the book of Romans. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The whole Old Testament is ramping up to this reality. This righteousness from God comes through faith in who? Jesus to all who believe. To all who believe. I've heard it said that good people go to heaven. There's just a problem with that. It's not true. See, you never could be good enough to go to heaven because you would have to be perfect. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And forgiven people have a life right here, right now. 
that becomes more and more like the life that God intended for us to live because we have been declared righteous in God's sight because Jesus is a righteous king. Now, Jesus is another kind of king. He is a suffering king as well. And as this Christmas story continues, the wise men, remember they're having this conversation with Herod and Herod wants them to find out where this baby has been born? Well, they actually find Jesus. But how old is Jesus when they find him? Does anybody know? Yeah, he's about two years old. So he's a, he's a toddler. Imagine Jesus as a toddler. He never went through the terrible twos. Isn't that cr- kind of hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But he didn't. And so the wise men show up where Mary and Joseph are living, and they actually bow down and worship a two-year-old child. Now think about that. Mary and Joseph are going, whoa, this is, this is different. And they're giving him gifts. And then an angel warns the wise men and says, look, Herod wants to kill this young child so you don't go back to him, go home a different way. And that's exactly what they do. I want you to check out what the verses say. When they had gone, the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, here's the deal. In the Christmas story, angels are bringing a lot of messages to Joseph and Mary. And I can imagine Joseph going, oh man, another message from an angel And this is what the angel says. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. And here's the reason. For Herod is going to search for the child to do what? To kill him. In fact, Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem and that surrounding area and executed all the children under the age of two in an effort to kill Christ the king. So when he has this message from the angel, what does Joseph do? Well, it says he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Now, you know, sometimes we read uh, the stories in the Bible, like the Christmas story, and we've heard it a gazillion times, and we just kind of nod our head and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I I heard that story before. I want you to think about the story, though. Put yourself in that situation. What if you were Joseph? What if you were Mary? And you get this message from an angel that this murderous king is going to kill your child. Can you imagine what that was really like? Now, if you're a parent this morning and you have children, did your first child change your life at all? Change your sleep patterns, your schedule, your priorities? Kids change our lives in fundamental ways. Isn't that true? And I think about this. Mary and Joseph, you know, they had this plan for their life. You know, settle down. You know, get a two-donkey garage, a nice house. And didn't work out that way, did it? Now, they have this, this child, Jesus Christ, and now their life is upside down. And, and I imagine, you know, if I'm Joseph, what that means for me, because I think in this story what we see is a foreshadowing of the suffering that's not only going to come into the life of Jesus, but to everybody connected to him, to his family, to his friends, to his followers. Because for Joseph, I mean, he completely lost his reputation. He, he actually marries this teenage girl that was pregnant while they were engaged. So that's a scandal that everybody knows about. And now this angel says, hey, get up and run away. Go, go to Egypt. So that means, well, what about my job? Forget your job. What about my home? Forget your home. What about my country? Sorry. Got to go to Egypt. And he does. And I've often thought, you know, God, you, you give us these incredible details in the book. Why? And I thought about this, so that if you lose your job or your house is foreclosed, when trouble pours into your life, when you 
thought your life was going in this direction and it ends up going over here. Don't give up. Don't despair. There's a king who understands. He's a suffering king. And his name is Jesus. And, and ladies, think about Mary. I mean, what was her reaction when Joseph hits her with his elbow and says, hey, wake up, I just got a message from an angel. And it's not good. We have got to flee to Egypt. Now, they didn't just go to, you know, Bethlehem International Airport and book a flight. They're going to have to walk or take a donkey or whatever. This is going to be a difficult and dangerous journey. And I would imagine that along the way, you know how when you take a long journey, you just kind of think? I would imagine that Mary's reflecting on the things that have already happened in these two short years and, and maybe thinking about that time in the temple where they go to present Jesus to be circumcised. He's just eight days old, so he's just a tiny little baby. And this old man in the temple named Simeon takes Jesus in his arms. And Simeon, I can't imagine the look on his face, but he prayed out loud and he said, God, I'm just so thankful that you allowed me to live long enough to see the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, because I can die in peace now. And then Simeon looks at Mary and he says, Mary, this child that I'm holding in my arms is destined, destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And Mary, a sword will pierce your heart. And I, I think of the time that Mary sees Jesus Christ, her adult son, being beaten and crucified. And it was a fulfillment of that prophecy that, that Simeon made. And I think, too, when Jesus was going through that kind of suffering, that people were completely confused because, hey, kings aren't supposed to suffer. Kings are strong. Kings are in charge. And you think about what Jesus experienced at the hands of the soldiers who arrested him because it says that they mocked him as a what? As a king. And what did they put on Jesus' head? Do you remember? Crown of thorns. And what did they put on Jesus? A robe. And they bowed down and said, Hail, king of the Jews. You don't look anything like a king to me. And then imagine this. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has this interrogation of Jesus, and he asks him, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah. You're right in saying I'm a king, but my king is not of this world. It's from another realm. Otherwise, my disciples would be fighting right now. And then, after interrogating Jesus, Pilate parades him in front of the, the Jewish nation and says, behold, your king. And they say, away with him, crucify him. And, and Pontius Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And do you remember what the people said, we have no king but Caesar. And I, I thought, as I read that passage again this week, there must have been a sword that pierced the heart of Jesus Christ because these are the people that he came to save. These are the people that he came to serve. These are the people that God loves and they have totally rejected him as their king. We have no king but Caesar. And what does that mean for us? Well, if you've ever been rejected, if you've ever been abandoned, and I, some of you have. When you were a kid, somebody walked out of your life. Some of you have been divorced and you've been abandoned. Does Jesus understand that pain? You bet he does. Because he's what kind of king? The suffering king. And, and church, here's what I want you to see. This is so important. As a follower of Christ the king, you share in his suffering. We do. The apostle Paul was a follower of Jesus, and he was no stranger to suffering. And he said this 
He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You know the old saying, welcome to the club? When you suffer, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, welcome to the club. Welcome to the suffering club because I know what it's like. How many of you have ever suffered any physical pain in your body? Okay, who hasn't? When you suffer physical pain, do you realize that it's an opportunity to identify with Christ and to realize, hey, Jesus probably went through a lot more pain than I'm going through right now. Or what about this? Ever suffer any pain in your heart? We all have. See, our suffering can actually push us closer to Jesus and strengthen our relationship with him. Because what kind of king is he? He's a suffering king. He's a suffering king. But the story continues. He's not just a suffering king. He's not just a righteous king. He's a victorious king. A victorious king. Now look at this next verse as the story continues. After Herod died, this is King Herod, the one who wanted to kill Jesus. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And I really, I can't even imagine what Joseph is thinking now. Okay, where are we going this time? Appeared to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. You're going back home. Here's why. For those who were trying to take the child's life, or what? They're dead. Now, this is incredible irony. Everybody who tried to kill Jesus is what? Dead. Who's still alive? Jesus is. And this is, this is like a dramatic foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus is a victorious king. Even as a boy, they can't stop him. Everybody who tried to kill Jesus is dead. And this, this continues because there is a Friday. We call it Good Friday, because it's good for us. It's very bad for Jesus. And they take Jesus outside the city limits to the town garbage heap, and they crucify him. And these Jewish leaders probably thought, hey, we finished the job that Herod couldn't do. We killed the king who said he's the king of glory. But what happens three days later? Jesus rises from the dead because he is what kind of king? He's a victorious king. And notice this, this is a powerful verse in 1 Corinthians, and, and I love this verse, and every time that I have the opportunity to do a memorial service, a funeral service, I think about this. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, because he's a victorious king. The last enemy to be defeated, to be destroyed, is what? Death. Not even death can defeat Jesus the king. And I'm so thankful, and here's why. This is what it means for you and me. Check this out. As a follower of Christ the King, you share in his what? In his victory. Pastor John Ortberg wrote a book called Soul Keeping, and he talks about how the disciples were always pestering Jesus with questions. It's a pretty interesting perspective because they would say things, well, hey Jesus, why was this man born blind? Hey Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Hey Jesus, what does this parable mean? And I thought about what happens when you're a parent. Do kids ever pester you with questions? I mean, just one after another. Mommy, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Daddy, why does the car go? On and on it goes. And I think underneath every question that is asked, whether by the disciples or kids, is the fundamental question of the human heart. Why? God, as I look around me at this world, it's a mess. Why? God, why does this little boy have a brain tumor? God, why are there terrorists? Why do wars still break out? God, why did my marriage fall apart? God, why did my dad get a debilitating illness? 
Before Jesus went to the cross, he made an incredible promise to his disciples. And it's found in John chapter 16. And Jesus is talking about going away, and he says this, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a while you will see me. And as soon as he says that, the disciples are completely confused, and they start pelting Jesus with questions. And he just kind of calls a time out, and this is what he says. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Do some of you ladies relate to that? And then Jesus looks at them and says, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one, no one will take away your joy. And catch this, Jesus says this, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. And I read that and I thought, what? No more questions, Jesus? And, and how does that apply to us? Well, you know, this idea that Jesus is going to be gone for a little while? Well, for the disciples, it was three days. How long has it been for us? Yeah, 2,000 years. Hey, Jesus, that's not a little while. I've told Jesus that before. And I've gotten this in response. In scope of eternity, it is. It's just a little while. I'm coming back. But during this time that we live in the world, we know this, the world's a broken place, and we're broken too. But a day is coming when Christ will return, and in that day, we will no longer ask any questions because his victory will be complete. And there's a day coming, church, when every single person who has ever lived throughout history will acknowledge the kingship of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says that one day every knee will what? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, that he is master, to the glory of God the Father. But that's not today. Could be. So far it's not. And the question is, okay, well, how do we live in this broken world? I mean, how do we close the gap between the life that we have and the life that we want? We said you have to embrace Jesus as your king, but what does that really mean? I want to do this real quickly. I wish I had a couple of hours to continue speaking to you, but I don't. These are some practical ways that you can embrace Jesus Christ as your king. And here's the first Embracing Jesus as our king involves a change in our allegiance. A change in our allegiance. Anybody ever said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? Allegiance can also be translated as loyalty or commitment. And here's a reality that is so important to understand. Our lives are shaped by our commitments. The commitments that we make, the commitments that we keep. Don't raise your hand. But let me ask you this. How many of you are committed to going to work this week? Your boss will be glad to know that. How many of you who are married have a commitment to be faithful to your spouse? How many of you who are parents have a commitment to love your child no matter what? Those commitments have shaped your life, right? Because commitments determine how you live, the choices that you make. Here is the foundational commitment that will change your life more than anything else. The commitment to follow Jesus, to embrace him as your king. I saw this design for a t-shirt that I thought was really cool. It says this, I pledge allegiance to the king of kings and lord of lords. Because if Jesus is the king that he claimed to be, then he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our loyalty and our trust. He deserves us to follow him and submit to his authority because he is what? He's a king. 
And, and church, there are so many ways that this plays out in our lives. Just real quickly, I, I could give you all these examples, but here's one. If you're married, one of the big areas of disagreement in marriages is money. Now imagine this, you've got this financial decision to make, husband and wife, and you've both decided we're gonna follow Jesus. So Jesus is our what? He's our king. So why don't we go to the king and ask him what to do with the king's money? Why don't we look at the principles of his word and determine what he wants us to do? Because after all, we're kingdom citizens. We should live by kingdom principles. Or how about this? I know this never happens with any of the couples at BBCC. But imagine that you have a fight with your spouse. Can you imagine? Some of you are not imagining. Some of you are thinking back to last night or earlier in the week. Right? Now, what would happen if a husband and a wife both said, I'm going to follow Jesus. He is my what? He's my king. And what if you went to the king, okay, and you said, hey, King Jesus, yeah, I really don't want to keep fighting. I want to do something about this conflict. So, King Jesus, would you show me what's inside my heart? And King Jesus says, yeah, I'll show you what's inside your heart. I'd be glad to do that. As a matter of fact, you're being really selfish. I am? Yeah, you are. Well, what do you want me to do, King Jesus? I want you to go ask for forgiveness and quit it. Now, let me ask you this. Is it easy to follow the commands of the king? No. Does Jesus know that? Yes, he does. But church, I will tell you this, and so many of you would just echo this. I know the times in my life when things go well are when I listen and obey Christ the King. And the times in my life when things do not go well is when I listen and obey what I want to do. And here's this. This is such an important principle. Jesus is the King, and he can give me commands. But do you realize this? He doesn't just tell you what to do. He gives you the grace to do it. And there's such a different perspective here. Jesus, when you really know him, when you really grow in your relationship with him, he gives you the desire and the ability to honor him with your life. Because that's the kind of king that he is. Now, let me do this. Let me quickly move on. Embracing Jesus as our king also involves a change in our values, a change in our values. Bob Pierce founded both World Vision and Samaritan's Purse, and he prayed this prayer one time. He said, God, please break my heart with the things that break your heart. Did you hear that? God, please break my heart with the things that break your heart. What if we prayed that? What if God answered that prayer? Because what, what does God really value? What breaks God's heart? It's when people turn away from him, when people don't live the kind of life that he designed them to live. If we have the same values as Christ our King, we will value people, all the people that God brings into our lives. And church, I thought about this. During this Christmas season, people are really open to an invitation to come to church, to come on a Sunday morning, to come at Christmas Eve. But what will motivate us to take a step toward them and actually invite them is if we value them, if we see them from God's point of view. And I pray that we will, that as a church, we will have the same values as Christ our King. And here's the, the last thing. Embracing Jesus as King involves a change in our priorities. And this is huge. Now, how can you tell somebody's true priorities? You look at how they spend their time. You look at what they do with their financial resources and how they use their gifts and abilities, how they invest their talents. Now, right now in our church, by God's grace, we are growing. We have more and more people coming to our church. And I'm, I'm so thankful because people are hearing the good news of the gospel. And so many of the people coming to our church are little people. 
We have a whole bunch of kids in this church. I was thinking back to the summer. We had 200 kids at VBS. We were blown away. And God, by his grace, raised up an army of volunteers, and it went great. Well, this last Wednesday night, you know, we've been doing Awana for a while. Guess what? We reached a milestone, triple digits in Awana. A hundred kids. And the question is, okay, where do we find the volunteers? Where do we find the teachers to meet the needs of these children? And, and church, you know where those volunteers are going to come from? The seats that you're sitting in. And here's what we often experience when we're asking for volunteers. You know, I'd really like to do it, but I'm so busy. Who isn't? But it's a matter of what? Priorities. It really is. And right now, just in practical terms, we need, um, and my wife told me this, and I have it written down, but I think I've memorized it by now, okay? And Donna Barrett would certainly echo this. We need small group leaders for our children's ministry on both services Sunday morning, Wednesday night. We need teachers for both services at, um, on Sunday mornings. We just need a whole bunch of volunteers, and we offer training. And this morning, this morning, if you're interested in talking with somebody about volunteering in children's ministry, would you write that on your connection card? Or talk to me or talk to Donna or talk to anybody on our staff. We'd love to talk with you about that. And here's another ministry that we really need help with. It's called Stephen Ministry. And I am so delighted that we have this ministry in our church because you never know what's around the corner. And Stephen ministers are people who come alongside others who are going through a, a tough time. It could be an illness. It could be an injury. It could be a divorce. It, it could be... Um, uh, death of somebody in your family that you're trying to recover from, all these different life issues. And in fact, on Sunday mornings, when you go to pray under the cross, that's typically a Stephen minister who's praying with you and for you. And so we need other people because there are so many needs in our church family. We need people who will step up and say, I will be trained to serve because I have a heart of compassion. Because I have the same values as Jesus the King and I care about people and I am going to make this a priority because my priorities actually shape my life. And in terms of priorities, Jesus nailed it. This is what he said. Seek first what? Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Do you, do you realize, and I, I've got to wrap this up. I've got so many thoughts that I want to share with you this morning. At the end of your life, you have this opportunity to debrief your life with God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to say, you know, God, on that Sunday morning when Pastor Dudley was talking about volunteering, I said yes. And I'm so thankful I did because I've made an investment for eternity in the life of a child, in the life of a person. I was seeking first your kingdom, not mine. Because that's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the stuff that you're worried about, all the stuff that you're chasing, hey, I'll take care of that. Those will be added to you as well. So church, here's the deal. Let me wrap this up. Let me land the plane this morning. What would it look like for you as an individual if you actually did what we're talking about. If you really had this complete allegiance to Jesus Christ, this rock-solid commitment to adopt his values, to embrace his priorities, how would that close the gap between the life that you have and the life that you want? The, God, the life that God wants you to have as well. And here's, here's the last thing. Church, think about this. This is something that I think about and dream about and pray about. What if hundreds of people in a church family said, you know what? We're going to embrace Jesus Christ completely. We're going to be people of allegiance to the king. 
fully committed to him. We're going to be people who have the king's values. We're going to be people who have the king's priorities. What would that look like? And so my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer too, is that Jesus Christ will make us a church that fully embraces him as our what? As our king. Now I want to show you real briefly a video. And it's a a sermon. It's a really short sermon, but a powerful sermon by a pastor. His name is S.M. Lockridge. And some of you have seen it before. It's called, That's My King. Let's watch. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves, he strengthens and sustains, he guards and he guides, he heals the sick, he cleans the lepers, he forgives sinners, he discharges debtors, he delivers the captive, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. 